Hi folks, as I record this, I'm enjoying that Friday feeling. But it's not just the end of the week, it's also the end of our little Stanford series. As I mentioned before, the scientists we featured are all postdocs. These positions are often difficult and poorly paid, but a rite of passage to getting a permanent or tenured post. Little wonder then, our guests are part of SERPAS, the Stanford University Postdoctoral Association, an advocacy group working to improve conditions for their members. Alas, science isn't all sunshine and roses. Our next guest, however, is a testament to perseverance. So join us for our chat with Dr. Natalie Nevarez. Hey folks, this is Pambe from Two Scientists again, and we are on to our third Stanford podcast with a postdoctoral scholar called Natalie Navarez. How are you, Natalie? Hi. <laughs> so we are basically just chatting to a bunch of the, the postdocs from Stanford to get a little feel for what they do and how they got there. So tell us a little bit about your background and um, what you studied and how you ended up here. Yeah, so uh, in I'll go way back, way back to undergrad. So in, in undergrad, mm -hmm. I studied, I was really interested in understanding shyness and mm -hmm. why individuals that wanted to engage with others had social anxiety about that. Um, and so I worked in the communication department to study that question. Then in graduate school, I actually moved on to work with animals. So once I um, started working with animals, I really fell in love with the experimental control that I could have compared to humans. So in graduate school, I moved on to study the neurobiology of social attachment and addiction, uh -huh. and especially where they overlap. So how we can use social attachments to help buffer from the possibility of relapse in uh, individuals that have substance use disorders. So to do that, I used an animal model called the uh, prairie vole. So mm -hmm. it's a socially monogamous mammal, and monogamy really rare in mammals, so they're a great model. And now I'm at Stanford studying similar questions, but now I'm using mice. So mice aren't as social as prairie voles, but they're still social animals, but they really allow the advantage of a lot of genetic manipulations that we still don't have with uh, prairie voles. So. Okay, so um, let's veer a little bit away from your research and talk about specifically your background, because I understand you're the first in your family to go to college, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So kind of a, a little bit of a backward story in some ways. So I was actually born in Gilroy, which is about an hour away from Stanford, mm -hmm. but I don't have exactly a hometown because uh, my parents are migrant farm workers. So that's why I was born in Gilroy. They were working in the garlic fields. Gilroy is the garlic capital of the United States. Uh, so we moved about every six to nine months between Gilroy, California, and this place called San Luis, Arizona, mm -hmm. and it's pretty much one city split by the border. So it's San Luis, Mexico, San Luis, Arizona, yeah. and that's where the majority of U.S. lettuce is grown. So they grew lettuce there and then garlic and cherries out here and grapes. So that was my background, moving around a lot. I actually really loved it. I didn't really have the experience of like, oh, I have to start at a new school and finding new friends because our entire community moved back and forth. Oh, okay. So our town like the majority of the people I knew would move out here. And uh -huh. then it was just a great time having half of the year in this beautiful California weather and then go back to Arizona and have all the benefits of living by Mexico. So uh -huh. it was really great. 
So my parents were in those jobs because they didn't have an education and they had been working those jobs for generations back in my family. My family, my grandparents were the first set of what we called bracero workers that mm -hmm. came as visitor workers to the United States. So they had been doing that for generations and I saw it really, you know, hurt their bodies and it also impaired them from spending time with us as kids. And so I knew that I didn't want that for myself. So when I was 13, I enrolled in college because I was just like, wow. I want to get this out of the way <laughs> as soon as possible. Um, so yeah, I enrolled in college courses. So it was kind of um, a little backwards. So I would go to high school in the morning, go to college in the afternoons. And At age 13? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was okay. really slow though, because I know um, it's not like I was really killing myself to do that. It's uh -huh. because I did community college throughout the whole four years that I did high school. Right. So it, it didn't take like it. I could still live my life as a teenager and I got to do this, you know, like to me, the college level courses were really engaging and I really liked it. So I thought that was great. Um, so I ended up finishing my community college degree before I finished high school. So mm -hmm. I walked for college before I walked for high school, which was kind of weird. Um, <laughs> and the other thing that was weird is like usually students in high school will do AP courses and transfer the credit to college. Mm -hmm. But I did it the other way around because I was like, well, I already have college credit. So I just transferred it to my high school. Um, okay. But yeah, so I did all those things not really understanding how college worked. Uh -huh. I just knew I wanted to go to college and my mom was really supportive. And so I just kind of did it. But all these things I was kind of learning along the way. Um, so then I finished my associate's degree and then I went to the University of Arizona and there again I was still so confused about how college worked I didn't actually know that a PhD like existed I just thought you kind of kept going to school and eventually people call mm. you a doctor you know like right. either you're a medical doctor or this other kind of doctor and I just figured this other kind of doctor you just keep going to school uh-huh <laughs> and well, it just happened kind of what we do yeah and it is yeah <laughs> I just didn't really understand how how that happened and so when I got to the University of Arizona, even during during the orientation, that's right. what, yeah, so I went to orientation and they're like, you have to pick a major. And I was like, all these other people are picking undecided, so I'm undecided. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, they, they were like, you can't do that. And I was like, all these other people are doing it. And they're like, yeah, but you already have a two-year degree. You, like, can't say that. So I had no idea what I was going to do. They're like, you have to tell us by tomorrow. And oh, wow. so I, I went home and I met this guy. Uh, during the orientation that was like, I'm a communication major, you should do that. And that's literally how I chose my first major. <laughs> and awesome. I ended up loving it. Um, and that's what set kind of my my major interest in social attachment. It's just that I was looking at it through this interpersonal communication lens. Mm -hmm. And then I've just gotten more and more into the neurobiology of it as I go on. But I like having that background because I think it keeps me connected to like the clinical aspect of all, mm -hmm. all of the work that I do. So yeah, that's very cool. Um, <laughs> So tell us specifically a, a bit more about your, your research. So you actually study various things. You've already mentioned addiction and monogamy and mm -hmm. so on. Yeah, so um, they may seem a little bit like disparate things, but they're actually the, the parts of the brain, both the regions and the neurotransmitters that modulate these behaviors are actually really overlapping in a lot of ways. So that's, that's what I care about, about the ways in which this overlaps. And I... I specifically care, so like if you've ever been to a rehab facility or if you've spoken to people that have been through rehab, and I, I especially think that as the United States keeps going on and we have the opioid crisis and all these other mm -hmm. issues, the majority of people have had some kind of experience with addiction. Yeah. But if you speak to someone that has had um, issues with substance use, a lot of the times the reasons why they can get better might be through a 12-step program or another similar program, but a lot of 
that parts of why those programs are effective is because they're providing a social network that is supportive. And so we all see it phenomenologically. We like see it happen, but we don't actually know how this is happening, right? Mm -hmm. The biology of it. And so that's what I care about. Um, so yeah, what I do is, uh, with the prairie voles, I study specifically how dopamine regulates these behaviors and all drugs of abuse act on the dopamine system. Mm -hmm. And so I look at how either having an experience with social attachment prior to having experience with drugs can help prevent a person from, from getting that reward from a drug of abuse or the other way around when a person's already have, have a substance use disorder, how having an attachment can help hopefully buffer from relapse. Oh, okay. So essentially you're trying to um, come up with treatments that are alternatives to pharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah. So even though I think that pharmaceuticals pharmaceuticals can be very helpful and they, especially some people might respond to one style of treatment better than others, mm -hmm. I'm more interested in just how can we treat people in a way that, I mean, we already have this, right? We already mm -hmm. have, people are everywhere. We don't have to come up with a new drug to be able to provide someone with social support. Yep. And so hopefully we can utilize something that can be free and can be accessible to people mm -hmm. yeah. so I listen to a bunch of other podcasts and um, so they deal with technology and people so in real life and um, one of the things that's come up a lot is the fact that people are spending more time on social media and are potentially disconnected from each other like that far more people find themselves lonely they don't make these kinds of social connections so how do you get people to meet each other for that to be an effective treatment yeah, I think social media is useful a lot in kind of doing the most basic aspect of connecting people. But I do think that for the benefits of the social attachment that I'm talking about, it has to be like physical closeness and having people around you. And that's actually what we see with the prairie voles. The prairie voles need to have their physical touch mm -hmm. aspect of it. And so um, I think that we could even use social media as a mechanism to get people together. But it would have to be for the basis of like meeting up in person, yeah. even developing you know, an app that allows an individual that feels in crisis, which we already have kind of things like that for other, um, you know, like suicide watch, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so having some kind of app where individuals are, you know, serving as a sponsor to be able to come and spend time with someone else during a time of crisis. Mm -hmm. And is there anything more that people could be doing with regards to kind of removing the stigma from these things? Like mental illness in general is still seen as something oh that's terrible like should we even be talking about this so i think that really is just a matter and i a matter of kind of bringing attention to it in general and i do think that as far as my experience in academia so far has been that as we're going along more and more grad students are opening up about their issues with with different psychiatric uh you know, problems that they might be having and also even as i've been going through graduate school i was in therapy um the last two years of grad school, I was in therapy mm -hmm. once a week. And I'm very open about talking about that because it was such an amazing experience for me. Mm -hmm. And because of me pushing other friends of mine, like I've gotten three other people to go to therapy now, you know, and I really haven't had anyone say that they've had a bad experience. But I do think it can be such a turnoff so quickly to try to get into this because it's there are so many other things in our life that we put a lot of time into right like sometimes some people it might be exercise that you really care about and maybe you go to one gym and you really like it and you go to another one and you don't like it mm -hmm. right and if you had that bad experience at first you might be completely turned off by gyms yeah. and that's kind of what happens with therapy but people don't see it the same way that you might have to you know kind of date a couple different psychiatrist uh -huh. before you feel ready to stick to one yep. and that's really unfortunate because I had tried to go to therapy when I was 19 went to a therapist that I didn't like and I just assumed you know what like this 
this just, just wouldn't be. work for me. Yeah. But then when I was later on in graduate school, I was like, you know what? I, I need to be really proactive about trying to find something that works for me. Mm-hmm. And I was really lucky to find something that was amazing for me. Yeah, that's cool. I have to say, I mean, maybe it's because I was a graduate student so long ago and that times have changed to the point where everything is so uber competitive now. But I don't remember experiencing things the way that I I hear graduate students now talking about it. And it's like, this is a different world. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think my, my experience in graduate school was really stressful. And I think in the, like, my experience was stressful, but then I hear all these other people's experiences, and they're so much more stressful even than what I had going on. And sometimes I wonder, like, when does that switch happen? When do you go from, like, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a grad student, and I'm going to be the PI that's going to understand my students and all mm-hmm. these things, and then... Then you're on the other side and you like aren't as understanding maybe as you wanted to be. And I really don't know when that switch happens, but I think that it's part of the pressures that are being put on primary investigators too, right? You, yep. When you have such a, it's like you have a hyper-competitive system for graduate students, but you have this really competitive system for PIs that are trying to get tenure. And then you have all these other pressures on people that are underrepresented minority faculty or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just women in general who might yep. be trying to have kids and still have the exact same tenure you know, timeline that, that male professors have. And so I think all those things kind of cause that to happen. It's like the student lacks the perspective to understand exactly everything that the PI is going through and trying to get either tenure. After tenure, I think things should be easier, mm-hmm. hopefully. I, I have only ever dealt pre- previously to my postdoc, had only ever dealt with people that were still in that position to, to go for tenure review. Right. Um, but so I think as students, we don't know exactly how everything works at the next level of academia so sometimes we lose the perspective on why they might be so stressed out and then I think as PIs they also kind of you get you get removed from you know how things were when you Mm -hmm. were a student so yeah but I do think that there's also um like more levels of that conflict and where these these issues come up in graduate school because yes you may have issues with your PI but then there's also yeah that hyper competitiveness student to student so I I experienced plenty of times when individuals would be like kind of fronting you know be like oh that wasn't that hard for me to do and Mm -hmm. this and that when it like obviously was but no one wants to admit that it was and for me it was different like I from the start told people you know what I'm having a hard time with this like I would rather be proactive and if I fail at something have it be not without me having tried to to get help because as an underrepresented minority with you know, parents that weren't educated, I've always realized that, you know, I'm behind on a lot of things. And so I always wanted to let people know these are the deficits that I think I have. I think it involves a lot of reflection and Mm self-awareness, trying to make sure that I understand what things I'm not good at or need help with, um, rather than being, you know, artificially confident or trying to, you know, pretend that I know things that I don't, because then that's where the whole, you know, imposter syndrome gets Mm -hmm. worse and worse. Yeah, so. and I think in science in general, that's a terrible trait to yeah. just try and cover up things that yeah. you're not aware <laughs> of. Um, so go back to your your model of your prairie voles. Now I'm picturing this cute furry little creatures. So what's the kind of environment that you work with them in? Yeah, so they uh, they are when they're born. They are just uh, separated from their mothers at a normal time of weaning um, because the actually their parents breed like crazy so they don't stop breeding so if we don't take the other kids out they just get really overcrowded really fast so we just so yeah and the the really cool thing about the model so like in the wild the prairie voles live in these underground burrows and um 
the the younger prairie voles, not the babies, the younger prairie voles, like teen prairie voles, they mm-hmm. help raise the pups. Oh, wow. Yeah, all of them, the males and the females. And that's what's really cool about them, too, is, like, you rarely see male paternal care in mammals in the wild. Usually, you know, they go, they spread their seed, and they don't take care of the pups. Mm-hmm. But here, like, prairie voles, they, they do the studies, and they go and get the pups, help feed them, do everything that the mom does. They're, like, very split 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so when they're in the nest, the, the the teens help rear the litter, and then eventually they they kind of separate out, start their own little thing. But in the laboratory, we can't exactly have that that system for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons of just you know keeping track of the animals, even just like who's who can get really hard really mm-hmm. quickly. But in my ideal setting, I would love to be able to give them you know a laboratory burrowing system. Yeah. But yeah, so right now the way that we do it is we wean them. Um, after they've had enough time with the mother and then after that they're separated just into groups of males um, males with males so sibling Mm -hmm. pairs always in two we try not to have any more than that and then the the females same thing they're paired with other females until eventually usually for experimental purposes we allow them to you know finally find a mate Mm -hmm. and for the most part you'll put them with with another animal of the opposite sex and they tend to just start breeding immediately (laughs) (laughs) and pretty much not stop until okay and how do you study the kind of the monogamy aspect of this then yeah so you can uh, okay so this is kind of um so we have this apparatus where we it has three chambers, and if I'm testing a male to see his ability to, you know, be monogamous, then I take two females and mm-hmm. tether them. They're, like, on little leashes. <laughs> yeah, okay. on the opposite sides of the cage. And the male gets to choose what to do for three hours. And it's really consistent. This is a test we've been using since 1992, and it's really predictive of the animal's monogamous behavior. And so uh, usually during those three hours, the male will just choose to do this side-by-side huddling behavior. It's not always sex, but a lot of times they, they do mate during mm-hmm. that time. Um, but really what's important for the important trait for their monogamy is this side-by-side huddling behavior. Mm-hmm. It's really cute. They just cuddle. Um, but then the the less monogamous ones will pretty much split 50-50 between who they visit. Uh-huh. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. And so do you find the majority of them doing that or? Yeah. So the majority behavior? of them, yeah. So that's the trait of the prairie voles is that they do tend to pick a partner and stay with them. But um, they actually have non-monogamous cousins. So they're actually really useful as a, a model because you have a comparative system already there, you know? And okay. so we can take these non-monogamous prairie voles and study their brains and see what's different. And that's actually how we found kind of the most basic finding is that they have this huge difference in oxytocin, which in, in you know, the media, a lot of people call it the cuddle hormone, but it really mm-hmm. is very complex for understanding, you know, just social, um, identifying other social conspecifics. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how does this relate back to humans then? And do we care because um i think that there's this kind of preconceived notion or at least this is something that seems to have been going around in the media for a little while recently that's oh you know most species aren't meant to be monogamous and blah 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 do humans fall into that category 
Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, especially nowadays, right, we have so much more of this emergence of, you know, non-monogamous marriages and relationships in general, which I think, you know, people should do whatever works for them. Um, and I don't necessarily, even though with the Prairie Vols I studied monogamy, the larger question that I study is just social attachment. Mm -hmm. So that can really be an overarching understanding of even just, you know, maternal attachment. It's the same as paternal attachment, and that's what I what I really care about. It just so happens that, that there's this model that has a really clear behavior, right? If I was studying a prairie vole that was doing this nuanced, you know, non-monogamous behavior, that, that just wouldn't be the most adaptable thing to study in a lab, you know? Mm -hmm. It just wouldn't lend itself to these important questions. But yeah, I would say that um, I think... I think every human, unless they do have something like antisocial personality disorder or something like that, every human has a brain circuit for social attachment. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Whether or not the attachment varies a little bit to what, you know, whatever works for that person, then I think it's totally applicable to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the prairies show actually variation in their, you know, ability to have these uh, monogamous attachments. But unfortunately, a lot of the, the research in, per, in the prairie field doesn't focus on the individual differences. I think right. that that's somewhere we're trying to go. Mm -hmm. But again, that complicates even, you know, if you have a data set, adding all these other distinctions is going to make it much more complicated. But we luckily have some researchers that are looking in that direction. And that's something that I really care about, too, in the future when I have my own lab. Okay, that's funny. I was going to ask you that <laughs> as the next question. So having spoken about academia in general and the whole process, you see yourself sticking to doing research and becoming a PI? Yeah, so I'm I'm open to possibilities, but right now the plan, you know, I'm a first-year postdoc. The plan is still to stick to academia, do mm -hmm. the academic plan. But I do think that there are a couple of things that are going to need to be, that I'm going to have to figure out how to work with mm -hmm. to make this work. And one of those being, you know, how long do I want to be a postdoc in the Bay Area where I can barely afford to live? Yeah. So it's, you know, I think if I were to leave academia, it would actually probably because of, be because of these external factors mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm getting older. I want to get my life started. And yep. this really holds those things up. And so even though I do think right now the plan that I'm going on is having my own lab and hopefully it'll be a prairie lab with mice and with rats to be able to study um, with mice, have all these genetic manipulations that I can do with rats, being able to study some like higher order questions involving addiction and attachment. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also really, really open to doing, you know, community college teaching and administration. I, mm -hmm. I'm a product of community college. I love that model. And I also feel like a community college allows me more access to the kind of students that I feel I was, mm -hmm. you know, like students that may not come from a super educated background. Um, you know, for example, when I was at the University of Michigan, where I did my PhD, I I taught there for six semesters, mm -hmm. and I really, you know, every every semester I would have just amazing students, and you know, especially you know, I, I felt so connected to the ones that would be open about you know I'm first generation or yeah or you know I'm struggling or you know anything like that, and so I but that was really a select few students in every class. The majority mm -hmm. of the class, you know, was was from a very different socioeconomic background um, and just all their life backgrounds in general were so different from mine. And it's not that I don't like to teach students like yeah. that. I, I just love to teach in general. Yeah. But I feel so good when I'm able to help a student kind of believe in themselves a little mm -hmm. more. And I think that at least from my experience in community college, those four years, I those were the kind of students that I had access to there. So Yeah, I think it's quite an understated thing to say that 
people like to see people like themselves doing <laughs> certain things and yeah. if you you know it's hugely inspirational i'm not sure that people who are already at the top of the tree understand how important <laughs> that is yeah and um, hopefully i can do both things right yeah. like it would be amazing if one day i could have a lab and then be able to either teach at a community college level or do you know just allow allow these students to come have research experiences in my lab mm -hmm. something like that would be yeah, ideal. yeah 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 <laughs> um so one last thing before i let you go and this interview would not be complete without a reference to the grant from Pornhub. <laughs> Yes. So tell us how that came about. Um, I just heard about it on social media. And so I applied for it. And I also thought that, you know, my research would be a good fit for, you know, obviously what their service is. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a really great uh, experience. So when I applied for it, I was a little worried, right? So like, mm -hmm. what are people going to think about this and whatever? Um, and I don't know, I can't speak for other fields, but really the neuroscience field is relatively progressive. And I think that we have such a surge and like really young people going into this field that like I only got positive responses from it, especially mm -hmm. during a time where, you know, we have, uh, you know, the, the politicians of the United States really not being super open to funding science or anything mm -hmm. like that, even though recently we did get a bump in our funding. Yes. I don't want to ignore complain. that. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there, there are a lot of people that are kind of anti-science that are very vocal right now. And so... I was really lucky that I got such a positive response. Like I didn't get a single negative response from getting wow. that grant. Yeah, I, I did not. And so if anything, I was just happy that one, you know, the Prairie got into like the, the mainstream <laughs> media because the Prairie are really like the, the stars of this show. I'm so lucky that they, you know, that, I, that I'm able to study them and that they're helping me answer these questions that I'm mm -hmm. just interested in and hopefully can help humans. And so I was really excited about that. Um, but I... I also was happy that, you know, as a woman in science, I was able to talk about issues revolving, you know, women's sexuality and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I, I was really happy and it was nothing but positive for me. So that's amazing. And it actually shaped uh, the scholarship, too. So from what uh -huh. I know, they are now looking to fund projects that involve uh, attachment and relationships. Oh, wow. They shifted it. And so I'm, I'm really happy that money goes toward those kinds of research so. absolutely i mean honestly as a scientist you just can't look a gift horse in the mouth if someone is prepared to fund you yeah no i was just like i mean definitely twenty five thousand dollars is no joke and also i was going through a really tough situation in my lab where we were running out of funding mm -hmm. and so that really was able to facilitate me finishing my degree like how am i gonna say no to that yeah <laughs> absolutely that's a fantastic story and thank you very much for speaking to us today. That's yeah, thank really cool. Okay, so when I came for my postdoc interview to Stanford, I was dressed in my professional outfit for my first interview because I was going to have it right when I got to campus that same day. 
But because I was going to be traveling for so long, I was flying out here from Detroit, which is a really long flight. I didn't want to be dealing with walking around with heels on. And so I just wore sneakers and my heels were in my luggage, which was a bad decision. So when I got to the airport, it turns out my luggage was lost. And so I had to do my interview in a full professional outfit with sneakers. People didn't even comment on it, but it was actually a nice icebreaker. I could comment on it. I obviously wasn't going to ignore the fact that I was wearing sneakers and a suit. So, <laughs> and that's a wrap for our mini episodes. Thank you to all our guests and our friend Samya for doing such a great job rounding them up. We're also grateful to the 10,000 Ways for generously donating not just one, but three different tracks. Make sure you look up their website, the10,000ways.com. Next week, we go back to our usual weekly schedules, beginning a stretch with scientists that we met on a trip to Australia. Remember though, should you want to learn more about us and our guests, you can always check out our website at twoscientists.org. Until the next time... Like a hymnal, her song from below, like a prayer. Good evening, she says to that great big white silver dollar pinned up in the Maybe I'm a ghost. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>